0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Bulls Beat Podcast Show, the Chicago Bulls Podcast. Welcome back to the Bulls Beat, Bulls fans. Doug Tonis here with you discussing our Chicago Bulls. And you're like, wow, Doug, two podcasts in like three days? That's crazy. Well, I had a big mistake in my last podcast and I just had to correct it right away. So my apologies for that. So I'm going to start off with that information, which is the Zach Levine trade kicker. Uh, I had not done quite enough research on it when I got it out there. So Zach is not completed yet with his 10th year of service. So his maximum, his individual maximum is 30%. So the most he can earn is 30% or 105% of last year's salary. So his current max deal, the cap has not risen so much compared to his raises. And so basically his trade bonus this year has almost no impact. And so this is almost sort of the reverse of what I said. The bulls are heavily incentivized to trade him now because his trade bonus basically won't do anything now. Uh, Whereas if they wait till next year, his trade bonus will kick in. And then uh, he would go up uh, to a much higher salary because his max next year will be 35% because he will have hit the 10th year of service. So he's in his 10th year now. Next year, he'll have completed 10 years and he'll be eligible for 35%. Uh, So the whole bonus, as best as I can tell, I'm not 100% sure yet, but I'm now fairly sure. Uh, His bonus, uh, trade bonus, is basically indicated by whatever year he's traded in and then across the rest of the contract. So it'll move up the rest of the deal by what gets him to 30% this year. And it's it's basically like nothing. So it it doesn't have a big factor, uh, shouldn't be an impediment, and actually becomes an incentive because if they wait, till next year it's actually going to make a much bigger difference and increase his salary considerably. So, uh, that's a good thing. The other thing is, you can only get a trade bonus once. So for the team taking on Zach, if they want to trade him later and they get him this year, that trade bonus won't kick in uh, again. I guess it wouldn't kick in for them anyway, but there's not like a this problem then goes away forever, you know, for the team that takes him in a trade, like they they won't have to worry about his salary kicking up a second time later. Uh, you can only get it once. So uh, just wanted to correct that uh, little thing. I thought that was important. And I think that does make it even more likely that Zach is traded this year rather than uh, next year or some other time in the future. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about, hey, Levine has played really poorly. His value is low. You know, Acme is again selling really low. And, you know, <laughs> I've been leading the bus on these guys that are like really bad. And I think almost now, like I've flipped a little bit. Maybe I'm just contrarian by nature, but I think in some some ways, I think now the rhetoric has gotten, you know, kind of a little harsh on them. So i got to say this: like I don't know that Zach Levine is worth less today than he was at the trade deadline last year. Like if you go back in time and look at last year at the trade deadline, you know Zach had not really played all that great. At, uh, you know up until that point, he went on an absolute terror after the trade deadline, and that's when they had that 14-9 run. He led them to the play-in play victory in the first play-in game. Uh, so I think his value is probably highest in the summer, but you know, exactly, like I said in the last podcast, for three years he's basically been a 60%-plus true shooting percentage guy on high volume, a good three-point shooter. I don't think the first 10 games of the season – 11 games, I guess now are really going to impact what people think of Levine. I think general managers either that like him or they don't like him, but they know the bull situation is lousy. They know there's like a bunch of weird stuff going on. Like, I don't think they look at Levine and be like, Oh wow, this guy just at 29 just can't do it anymore. You know, just like, you know, Zach looks fine athletically a little bit of some back spasms early too, which probably impacted his shooting a little bit. So I just don't think that that's such a big deal. So I'm going to leave that at that. Um, I discussed on the last show, and I'm going to recap some of last show's stuff, just in case you didn't catch the last one, but you catch this one. You know, has Acme ever won a negotiation? And so while these guys are negotiating a trade, I said, one of the key things here is you really want uh, multiple bidders to get the most. You know, when I look at Acme and his negotiations, you know, they they lost a ton in the Vuch trade initially. Uh, When... They did his extension. It feels like they just overpaid right away. They didn't play hardball with him at all. They said, we'll give you more minutes and more touches and like whatever, all this other stuff. They just seemed to cave to every single one of Vuce's demands to keep him around, which seemed like really crazy given that it didn't seem like there would be a market for him. It looks like we went back and we overpaid Io DeSumo. I like Io. I think there's a good chance that's going to be a good deal. But it seems like we overpaid him. You know, like all the free agent money was basically gone from the market. He had a pretty poor second season. He was playing like a vet mim player that second season. You know, if you just signed him to the qualifying offer, he was still restricted this next season. Like there was no real reason to go like $7 million a year on him. And you think of like how close the Bulls are to the luxury tax now. If they had had that extra wiggle room, they could do a lot of other things. And so that did kind of hurt them. And it was maybe, we'll say, a player-centric first thing. They had trust in I.O. all this other stuff. But, like, it really wasn't good for the team. Like, when you're really at the head of, you know, your team and doing this kind of stuff, you need to be a little bit more sociopathic you know, in the way you run things. Like, you, you can't just think of the feelings of guys like, oh, I.O. wants more money. Well, he didn't really deserve more money, and he had no money coming from anyone else. And, and now you've boxed yourself in by paying him so much money. Uh, DeMar DeRozan... His best other offer was the taxpayer mid-level exception, and we paid him $87 million, and that contract was largely viewed as insane at the time. Now, it worked out. DeMar DeRozan worked out. like He played super well for the Bulls, so I'm not complaining about the result, but it definitely seems like you drastically overpaid whatever the market was to make that happen. Uh, Caruso, kind of the same thing. Absolutely worked out. Love Caruso. Tremendous value contract right now. But the Lakers weren't even going to pay him. I think it was like four million less than what the Bulls paid him. Like he went back and said, Well, what if I play for you for less? And they still said no. So we also seemed to pretty significantly outbid the market there. Now, maybe we needed to in that case because he really wanted to go back to LA. He had the title there and, and wanted to be in LA. And so, you know, that one definitely defensible. Plus, it's an amazing contract. Like Caruso is incredible. I love Caruso. So so glad that happened. But I think the bulls are going to need multiple bidders for the Zach Levine thing to work out well in their favor, because it seems like more or less, they just bu- just capitulate on everything. And so when I talk about the DeMar deal and the Crusoe deal, which are deals that worked out for us, you know, people are like, well, those were great deals. All right. So like, say I want to buy a Toyota Camry, say I own this Toyota Camry for 20 years and say that Toyota Camry is an amazing car for me. It has no problems, works out great. Put 350,000 miles on it with only regular maintenance. It was a great car. Amazing car. Loved the car. And I paid $100,000 for it when a Camry uh, goes for thirty dollars Did I negotiate well with the dealer? I mean, I could still have loved the car. I could still have loved everything I got out of it. It could have still served me very well. It doesn't mean I had a good negotiation. And so when I'm talking about whether these guys are good at negotiating... I'm not talking about whether something does or does not work out for them in the end. I'm talking about, like, how well did they maximize the margins while in the process? And because it's really important, like, you are limited by your total amount of money you spend. So when you overpay on someone, it means you can bring in less players. It means you have less money to give someone else. Every time you pay someone more than you have to, it hurts your team. And so, like, I get it. It's great. You want to give these guys more money. You want them to be happy. You want them to feel great. But... You know that hurts your team. You know when you do those types of things, we are hurt by having paid IO that seven million and then not being able to bring in like another six million dollar player. I guess it'd be like five million now. The vet min is two million. Got to adjust that in my head. But we could have brought in another five million player. We have that much left on the middle of the exception. We have that DPE for Lonzo and stayed under the tax. Now when we're trading Zach Levine, we could have taken an extra five million in salary, sending him out which would have helped out tremendously with some of these other teams who are trying to trade for them to dump salary because they're luxury tax teams, whatever. We could have saved them a bunch of money in this deal too, like saved them like 10 million in cash. Like that could have gone a long way towards getting extra value, bringing back. And we don't have that option anymore. So, you know, like those are things that are important and it doesn't matter necessarily that things work out, but it's like, did you do the best you can with each type of thing? And so even when they make good decisions, they don't always do the best they can. Um, so I said earlier, I was not gonna rip on these guys too far and now, I just ripped on them even more. But I'm gonna swing it back a little bit. Um, there's this also kind of thought going around of like, well, why would you rebuild with Acme in charge? Like, you know, I've said like, hey, you gotta get draft assets, you gotta rebuild your asset base. I think it's really important to rebuild your asset base. Like you can't just keep declining your asset base and hope to get better. It's just not going to happen. You need, like, a shotgun approach to the draft. You don't necessarily need to be really bad. I think people think when I say rebuild, it means you have to tank. I might be okay tanking, but I don't think you have to tank. But what you do have to do is you have to get lots of draft picks. So, you know, like, Tyrese Maxey was picked, I think it was 21st. You know, I use this example, like, if... If they had traded down with Detroit to seven instead of taking Pat Williams, and they took Halliburton at seven, and then they got 19, and they took Maxey at 19, this team would be, like, amazing right now. So you don't always have to, like, have these great picks. And the way the lottery odds are now, tanking is really kind of dicey, right? Like, like you have an 11% chance of getting the number one pick. And if you are the worst team in the league, you're, like, 50-50 to pick fifth which is not like a spot where you're like super likely to get a star. So I'm not saying necessarily you have to tank, but you do want to, you got to get younger and you got to get lots of assets. And then you need then lots of opportunities. And then some of them are going to pan out and some of them won't. So you just need lots of opportunities. And those, those types of picks expand your asset base over time. Like those types of moves expand your asset base. Use your cap room to expand your asset base. Maybe you're taking back bad salary for a year and you're getting an extra draft pick. Maybe you're facilitating a trade, you're getting some extra second rounders. Whatever, like you don't have to use it to sign a guy who's going to be overpaid or or a short-term guy. You can do that when you're ready to win, that's fine. But use that to add to your asset base. Use these draft picks to add to your asset base. Like you need to grow your asset base. Your asset base sucks right now. It's going to be really hard to win from where you are now. Even if you luck into a star right now, everything else is so declining. It would be hard to do much with it. So you need to grow the asset base, however that looks. And so people say, well, why rebuild these guys? They're terrible at drafting. Pat Williams stinks. Dalen Terry stinks. Marco Sabonovic stinks. Io DeSumo, they got lucky. And here's what I'm going to say. The draft is really a crapshoot. I know no one wants to hear it. I think there's all this skill. The second thing I'm going to say, the draft is really about how good your scouting department is. Yeah, in the end, Arturus and Mark are picking you know, whoever they pick. And it, it, I'm going to assume it's Arturus making the final call. But and I don't know if you guys have worked in management. Some of you, I'm sure, yes. Some of you, I'm sure, no. But like, to a large degree, you're taking the best advice of the people underneath you and making the best decision you can. Like I don't know that Arturus is like pouring over film and saying, like I got to take this guy. And that's kind of like how we think of it. Like, so we're laying this all at the feet of the leader. But to the extent the Bulls are making bad draft decisions, it's probably the internal scouting department that's either just not making good evaluations, and you could say there's, I, mean, I don't know what it looks like on the inside of the scouting department. I don't know how long guys have been there. But, you know, guard packs, they drafted outstanding up until Muritich and Butler. And then after that, it was kind of like average ish. Like, people say it was just terrible, but, like, yeah, Kobe White seems like an okay pick in retrospect. Wendell Carter was, like, an okay pick in retrospect. They didn't, like, knock those out of the park, but they weren't bad picks. Lowry was, looks like a good pick in retrospect. Bobby Portis was a really good pick in retrospect. Denzel Valentine was just, like, in an absolute crap draft where there really wasn't anyone. Like, they didn't do great, but they weren't, like, abysmal. They were kind of just, like, in the end, if you actually evaluated all 30 teams, like, that run was kind of, like, just in the middle, but they really needed, like, a great run, and they had amazing runs before that. So it was, like, you're kind of judging them based on their own past. They're actually, like, statistically one of the best drafting teams from, like, 2004 until 2012. Like, really an amazing run in that stretch. So they're kind of average-ish, and it's probably a lot of those same guys are here, and they're probably still sort of average-ish. You know, Pat Williams, like, the guys around him all mostly sucked. Like, it's really defensible. You can understand why it happened. Dalen Terry, I have no idea what we were doing there, and everyone around him was really good. So that one stands out like a sore thumb of, like, this was a bad selection. We're going to call that the Doug McDermott pick for this front office of like, it's completely unexplainable when you made it and still unexplainable today and didn't work out. But I like Julian Phillips. You know, I like, I like uh, Io DeSumo. So they've done okay. Like they've not really had many chances. Marco Simonovic was a draft stash. They didn't have a roster spot. They had to take him. I mean, it was, like, insane. They gave him three years. But, like, just taking the guy and seeing what happens, like, that wasn't bad. I think, I think it was fine. Like, it didn't work out. But it was, like, it is a 44 and you had no roster spot. It's okay to take a, a shot on a guy like that. So, anyway, like, I think in the end you can't look at them like, oh, well, these guys can't draft. You have to get rid of them to rebuild. You know, I'd be fine getting rid of these guys. You've heard me talk lots of times. I think they're, like, in over their heads. I don't think they have a lot of experience. I don't think they're really great at what they're doing. I think Arturo has just made his entire reputation on Nikola Djokic and that kind of is what it is. But that doesn't mean they can't learn and they can't get better, right? Like this is one of, there's 30 jobs like this in the NBA. It's the first time he's held it. He's had a few years of experience. And so what I hope is that they look at what's happened over the last few years and they say, wow, that didn't go well. I'm going to need to do some things differently. I maybe need to negotiate a little harder. I can't just give in on everything. I can't just overpay for everything I want to do to make it happen because I'm going to run out of stuff to make more changes. Like, I actually need to be stronger in these negotiations and get more on my side and not just capitulate. Like, I hope they start looking at these things. You know, like, I look at Daryl more, Morey trading James Harden, and I think, like, man, this guy had one bidder who shouldn't have even been that desperate. And he, he like, you know, smoked him out. And I they, and they got pretty good value for James Harden. I thought it was insane. So I do think, like, the, there's room for these guys to get better. You should look at people like they can learn and grow and get better at what they're doing. They're both new to the positions that they hold. I'm not saying I would keep them. I wouldn't. But if you do keep them, we shouldn't be like, wow, there's no way this could improve over what it is. You know, generally, I have been a Gar defender or I shouldn't say defender as much as I feel like people were overly irrationally against them like they were actually fine I think they were a very average front office up until 2012 they were actually a, a pretty elite front office which no one wants to accept a lot of the problems they had were the restrictions the org places on them but they they actually did really well uh and then after 2012 they went from like being kind of like really I'd say top 10 to like eh, maybe more like 20th Like, they didn't really have egregious mistakes, but they didn't make anything happen either. And they had a very different MO. They were, like, a very conservative, risk-averse office. They always tried to win on the margins. Like, some of these things that Acme doesn't do, they were really good at. And when you think of, like, a team owned by the Reinsdorfs who aren't going to pay the luxury tax and place these artificial constraints and small market mindsets, you realize you kind of need to do things like that. Like, you can't be... I'm going to be super aggressive and overpay for things because I know I'm going to run out of stuff. So they sort of match the mindset of ownership. And you need, a, you need a front office that actually thinks about, here are my constraints. What is the best I can do within these constraints? So I think they also took some heat for stuff that like, maybe was a little bit more on ownership. Not that we don't give ownership heat. We give them plenty of heat. Uh, but their style maybe matched a little bit better with the way ownership is going to allow them to operate. And so, you know, this is a chance, though, for Acme to say, hey, look, these are the things I didn't do well in these first few years when I built up this first group I tried to build up. Now, when I try to build up a second group, how do I learn from that and be better at that and and do better within the constraints I have? I saw I ran out of cap room and I ran out of draft picks and I ran out of assets and I couldn't make things happen. And, you know, like now I need to think like, wow, I can't just hope no one ever gets hurt on my team. You know, I can't can't paint myself into a corner where one guy is so critical to the success of all this thing, and he's, he's an injury-prone guy, and if he gets hurt, I'm completely screwed. I can't do that again. Like, like Some of these like, obvious things, like, yeah, I got to be a little bit more careful about how I manage all these deals. So I think there's room for them to improve, you know, and if they rebuild, I think that's a time where you look in the mirror, and you really do a retrospective on stuff and say, here's all the things that went wrong, and maybe they can come back and be better you know, than where they were. And so, you know, I'm totally fine if we get rid of these guys. That would be my preference. But if they don't, like, I'm not going to be hopeless about it and be like, wow, there's no way this can change. Like, people can change. They can get better. And so I think they've been really, really bad, but I'm not uh, maybe quite as hopeless as other people. And and to tie it back, actually, because I don't want people to think, like, I'm a huge Gar Pax, whatever – Like it was time for them to go because in this case, they've been there like 18 years. Like you knew they weren't gonna change, right? Whatever they're gonna do, they brought to the organization. It worked for a while, then it stopped working. And they've been there so long, like they they you know, it's kind of like if you walk the same path over and over, you make ruts in the path. Like they made ruts in the path. They weren't gonna behave differently, they weren't gonna adjust and grow anymore. They've been at the gig too long. You know, it's time to do something else. And so it was good that we moved on from them. So I'm not trying to say like, well, if we brought them back, this would be great. Not at all. Like they're, they're kind of like era and time and like whatever, whatever they're going to learn and do. The only way they could ever be good again, in my opinion, is if they went to another organization, learned a bunch of stuff there, and then, you know, got something that sparked regrowth and change in their behaviors and attitudes. But like they, so regardless, not saying it was bad to get rid of them, not saying I want them back, but just saying, hey, you know, these guys did some really good things here. And then they stagnated. You know, you saw there was no growth. You saw there was no that the things they were good at stopped working. You know, they did not grow at the league. So Acme is sort of on a totally different end of the spectrum. What they've started with has not worked out super well. But I think because they're also early in what they're doing here, there's a lot of time for these guys still still to grow and adjust and, and fit into their roles and improve. And so still think, like I said, I'd rather bring in someone that I feel is more confident, competent. And I feel more confident in. But if not, I'm not going to be like, "Wow, there's no chance this can work." All right, kind of mixed messages from uh, on Demar Derozan. I think it was like Casey Johnson sort of saying like, "Hey, these guys aren't going to trade Demar." Uh, Shams was on uh, the rally and he was talking about the Zach Levine thing, and he said, "Yeah, you should also keep an eye on Demar." Other front offices around the league think there's a good chance that the Bulls are going to trade both. The Bulls and DeMar are very far apart on an extension. Surprise, surprise. Maybe even what I said about negotiations, the Bulls will hold the line there on DeMar and not go something crazy. Maybe that's what's causing this. Uh, recap on some time restrictions. I mentioned these last podcast, but again, if you missed last podcast, and this is kind of like a correction of some stuff on last podcast, uh, Philly can't aggregate guys from the hardened trade until December 31st. Newly signed guys anywhere this summer, anywhere in the league, Lakers being one of the teams that's most important here, though, because almost all the guys we would take from them were newly signed this offseason, uh, can't be moved until December 15th. Uh, so probably this is going to drag on for a while. You know, when I talked about how these guys need multiple bidders, like two of the three first thought bidders are the Lakers and the 76ers. Miami is maybe the other one. Two of those three guys, they can't bid until December 15th for the Lakers, December 31st, for the 76ers, so they can't bid right now. You can have discussions with them, like what would this look like on this date, but they can't bid right now. There's also always, of course, some risk that Zach could continue playing really badly and his value could drop, or he could play more to what he's done in the past and his value could you know, kind of rise and add confidence to the idea that we want to trade for him. Uh, so we'll see how all of that goes. Um, you know, I, I'm a little nervous that we're going to trade for veteran players to win around Demar and Vooch. I mentioned on my last podcast... This would be the worst thing you could do. And I thought there's no way this front office could be dumb enough to do it. But Casey Johnson tweeted like, look, these guys just did a rebuild two years ago. Don't expect them to rebuild again. They're going to try to win now. And I'm OK if you want to try to win now. Like to me, I've been saying for a while, like you just got to break apart this, this big three, quote unquote, because they don't play well together. They play really badly together. And so moving on from any one of these guys might improve that. But while doing that, like, say, say you try the Lakers and you get Rui Hachimara and you get Austin Reeves and you get, like, the Lakers' 2029 pick. Just say that's the package, okay? I don't think the salaries match exactly, but we'll just say roughly that's the package. All right, well, like, Reeves and Hachimara are guys that could help you. You know, they could fill roles that the Bulls need. And they could be guys that are going to be here for a while and help, like, with the next generation of players. And you might be better moving Zach for a couple of role players, adding more depth. And maybe you're, you know, you aren't going to completely tank by doing that. You're going to be able to make other moves to remain kind of competitive in this sort of play-in-ish kind of try-hard sort of team. So maybe something like that actually works out just fine for you. You know, maybe that is an okay, you know, type of move. And it's a, a move that allows you to still compete today, but... Also, like, sets you up with maybe a more balanced team in some way. Um, I mean, actually, I, I, I kind of like Austin Reeves. I don't think he's, like, amazing. But I think his contract is really good. But then I'm like, well, we have Io, we have Caruso, we have Kobe, and we have Javon Carter. Like, adding Austin Reeves into the mix seems like not a great fit. But from a talent perspective, maybe it's okay. Maybe you then move on from Javon Carter, you know, in some other deal to a contender because he'd look really good there you know, or you make some other moves, and you, again, you look to rebuild the asset base in some way. You know, Caruso would be another guy, you know, if you're going to go into a rebuild, you probably move Caruso. Now, if you move Caruso, that probably hurts you more than moving just about anyone in terms of today's wins, but you go to a rebuild, even if it's not a tanking rebuild, you probably move on from Caruso, because do you really want to keep Caruso for one more year, and then have to pay him, like, 25 million a year, when he'll be, like, 30, 31, and then you know, like I said, guy goes balls to the walls, but if he starts losing any of his athleticism or his injury history starts catching up with him even more, you know, all of a sudden that becomes dicey. So like, you may not want him on like a four-year deal, like $100 million from like 30 to 33. Like that becomes maybe something you're a little bit, eh, I'm not so happy about it. Like I love Crusoe making 9 million a year, like absolutely phenomenal. But on his next deal, if he gets paid, you might not feel the same way. You know, that's, that's the tricky thing about these guys who are sort of like good players, but not elite players. It, it can be hard to build around a lot of those guys. Anyway, apologies for the complete screw-up on the Zach trade bonus thing last show. Uh, I think think I got everything out there this time. Anyway, great talking with you guys. Hopefully, we'll get another one in next week.